ladies, gentlemen, and otherwise, and welcome to the Daily Brain Bleed. My name is Jeff. My name's Tucker, and I just tried Bang Energy Drink for the first time the other day. Are you glowing? It's it's awful. It's it's it tastes like what I imagine sweetened ethanol tastes like. It's not good. Anyway, we have a special guest on the pod today. One another Hollywood insider. One Corey Schmalsley. Corey, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you guys doing? We if I was doing any better, I would have hit somebody. <laughs> Uh, Tucker, correct me if I'm wrong. Is Bang Energy Drink are those like the Sour Patch Kid flavor? Uh, they have really over the top kind of flavor names. That's... Like uh, it, it, it's supposed to be something I guess that's popular with uh, teenage boys. And I was going out like running the other day. I was like, man, you know, I haven't had an energy drink in the wa- in a while, so maybe I can try something that will get my levels up. And it, if anything, just made me more <laughs> laggard and. Just felt disgusted with myself. I, you know, say what you will about like the 2005 era Red Bull craze or anything like that. That was just like a pure thing that people were going for. But now this energy drink game, it's all out of control. All out of control. Yeah, I I don't, I don't, I don't mess with it. It, I, I do Red Bull Zero. That's as far as I'll go, and I get jittery and wired, and uh, I don't like the person that I become. (laughs) Yeah. So. I, I like some of that uh, some of that powdered donut, if you know what I mean. L- literally powdered donuts. I just like the sugar. It's good. Um, yeah. That's all I got. Yeah, no. So, Corey, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so um, I am from Pennsylvania originally, right outside Scranton um, in the Poconos. Um, I went to this kind of small engineering school, Lehigh uh, University, right in Pennsylvania, and... I kind of, so I was doing mechanical engineering, got like halfway through. I had a friend of mine, Chris uh, McElroy, who's been on the pod, who he was doing film stuff uh, at Baylor, and he and I were talking. I was like, that's the kind of thing that I want to get into, but I was too stubborn, and uh, you know, the parents wanted me to get the actual mechanical engineering degree, be responsible. So I did that, but at the back of my mind, knowing like, I think I want to go work in entertainment. Um, my senior year at Lehigh, I was on College Jeopardy, and in the Ooh. the portion where like Alex Trebek would ask you questions, like right in between, right after the first commercial break, he asked me what I wanted to do, and I said, "Well, I'm studying engineering, but I want to work in entertainment. So if you're hiring, let me know." Um, <laughs> then the night that it aired, I got a LinkedIn message from an HR department at one of like the bigger talent agencies out in LA, and they were like, "Hey, like." If you want to set up an interview, we'd be down. So I interviewed, I flew out, um, did that whole process, got hired. Uh, and so then I worked there. That I worked there right after I graduated in 2017, where I worked there in the talent department for a year. And then I moved over to the TV lit department. And then after doing that, deciding I didn't want to be Ari Gold, um, I <laughs> left and I'm now working in development at a uh, cable network. So awesome. for, and, for scripted television. And can I say this? I know we're a few months late to this, but I mean, this is the first time we're talking about it. So uh, RIP Alex Trebek, RIP yeah. to the king, you know, like. Yeah, you got to you got to pour one out for that guy. We lost a lost a real one there. Yeah, that was uh, definitely a bummer. I mean, it's been interesting. I haven't been follow. I haven't honestly ever after I was on. I don't watch as much as I used to. I think I came in last in my episode, so it left a sour <laughs> taste in my mouth. Uh but 
Yeah, I so I haven't been watching, but I have been paying attention to like the the various kind of replacement discussions that they've got going on and the guest hosts that they're doing. Um, I think Ken Jennings is probably my my go to bet as the permanent host, but as a Packers fan, I am very excited for Aaron Rodgers to do his two weeks stint. <laughs> That's going to be a lot of fun. There you go. Can I just say, in terms of coming in last place, was there a prize option that was literally an entire career? <laughs> because you know, I think you actually made out like a bandit. <laughs> yeah, it ended up it ended up working out. There were times, you know, when at being at the talent agency, it's not the most glamorous job. It's not as uh, fun as it may seem. And so when I was having like some of those rough days, I was like, I re- like if I had come in first place, where would I be? Like. There, there was a whole world in front of me, and this was the third place option. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's it's crazy to think about, and uh, it could have gone a very different way if I had said something slightly different. So, I just remember um, a few days back, just to continue on the Jeopardy bit for a minute. Uh, some of the contestants they were asked. This Republican vice presidential candidate from 2012 later became Speaker of the House or something like that. And apparently nobody knew the answer. And who are they who are they scrounging for for these Jeopardy contestants <laughs> now? You know, like, yeah, they're, they're getting Wheel of Fortune rejects. Oh, I'm no. kidding, kidding. We're uh. going to get uh, all the angry Wheel of Fortune fans <laughs> emailing us, <laughs> you know. I, I support Wheel Wheels. It's a it's got a great format. Um, but if I had to choose between the two, I would I would go with Jeopardy. Let Let me be clear. Addressing Wheel of Fortune solely as Wheel makes it much cooler than it has any right to be. You're like, oh yeah, I was I was guest featured on Wheel for like a month. It's like, no, shut up. You played Wheel of Fortune, you absolute dork. Yeah, See, this is yeah, one of those not glamorous. This is actually one of the those under-discussed ways in which American Idol destroyed American pop culture because it was after that that we had that boom of these ra- reality competition shows that I think killed the market for new game shows in the purest sense. And so now the people who, like 30 years ago, would have tried to be on Jeopardy are now saying, so you think you can dance with chainsaw juggling and sword swallowing or something like that? So... Uh, we have truly degraded, I think. Show me the Venn diagram of people who were going to try out for Jeopardy and then did RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, it's it's a positive. <laughs> I you know I don't know, man. I don't know. I, I'm a I'm a survivor stand though, so we can we can be critical as much as we want about the other reality shows, but let's leave Survivor out of it. That well, is I mean, Survivor's an Survivor's an OG. Like it's yeah. it's old school. I think they I think they're exempt from the craze. I think like the first big reality show, and I don't know if reality television really existed at the time that it came out, but it kind of got retconned into the genre when it became big, and that was Cops. And Cops only recently went off the air because of, you know, everything. <laughs> yes. So not, not aging particularly well, that one. No. No, have you Oof. seen, there was also a show, like Live PD. Which yes. was cops, but unedited. It was just like oh, a live stream God. of cop body cam. Yeah. So I, I think unedited is a bit. Okay. So full disclosure, I spent 
like I went down a rabbit hole with Live PD for a minute <laughs> because it was quarantine and I had nothing to do. And so I watched like a, an unhealthy amount of Live PD. And to say it's unedited, I think is a little disingenuous. They very much construct a little narrative for you to follow along with. But like there's no production at all. It's literally just like you said, like cop body cams. Yeah. And it's uh, it's pretty out of control. Um Live PD is to cops what like Maury Povich is to uh, Jerry Springer. Let's <laughs> let's put it that way. Oh man! So would you say, as far as to get back around to a question that we probably talked about, I don't know, ten minutes ago now? Um, so in the in the entertainment industry, you're more of a behind the scenes writer esque type person. Is that fair to say? Um, that was. I mean, the goal when I came out here was to be a writer. It's 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 transitioned a little bit from there so basically what i do uh, from the development side of things is like like i hear pitches from writers um and then we work with our team to uh develop those pitches uh work on the show so we're not doing the actual writing but we're giving notes on the scripts trying to figure out what works both for our network what works creatively um and then kind of shepherding those shows. So then when they do, and then they'll go into production and we're working a little bit with, uh, you know, watching cuts of episodes, giving notes and feedback, tightening them up, um, kind of all along that line. So professionally you deflate people's balloons. That's what you do. It is. You, yeah. You kick puppies for a living. A big part of the job is saying no, which is, you know, <laughs> such, it's such a bummer. Um, I found different ways of doing it. Um, but yeah, it's that is the that's the least fun part of it. Yeah, 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 sure. Have you ever had to pull the compliment sandwich tactic? Like love what you're doing. I love your energy. The content is bad, but I love your energy, you know? Just I wouldn't even call that a tactic. Uh <laughs> that's just the my modus operandi. Like that's what I do. Um but yeah, it's 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 an art and it's not an art that I'm particularly good at yet, but still figuring out of how to uh, constructively uh, tell somebody that the thing that they've spent so much time on uh, isn't going to be right for us. Ooh, so, yeah. ouch! That but, that hurt, and I'm not pitching you anything. So <laughs> yeah. you're just demolishing human spirit on the daily, and I respect that. Yeah, um, but then that's I a mean, hard line so of work. Much when you do find something. Uh, that you're like really into it's it's been great as somebody who had you know aspirations of one time of doing the creative side like actually working with really inspirational um writers and and talent uh and just kind of seeing something come to life and and watching them work is is amazing and um we've got a few of our shows are going and and to see them go from literally just this random idea that somebody had or like something that was totally different into the form that it is now. Um, that makes, that makes up for a lot of the, the negativity for sure. Yeah. I mean that, that sounds incredibly gratifying to on any level, just be a part of that process of building, uh, building something and bringing it to fruition. Absolutely, absolutely, and and Jeff, you know a little bit about that because you're a teacher, you know. So oh, I'm I am adept at the compliment sandwich, um, because it, you know you you do this to adults, um, I do this to fourteen year olds, <laughs> and so they are in a word fragile sometimes. 
um, because they hate their lives and their bodies are changing and nothing makes sense. And then also they don't have any liquid assets whatsoever. Their portfolio is so, <laughs> so weak. Like I, I would dog walk these kids about their stocks. But anyways, uh, yeah. So, I mean, you have to any, – any vocation that involves constructive criticism, you have to get really good at um, communicating yourself. My bit is that I'm never pleased. A hundred percent. And so the thing is, like, that sounds horrible and soul sucking. But the thing is, the kids grow to expect it and they want to one up you. They want to beat you. And so then when I say, yeah, that was that was pretty good. They like lose it. They love that. Have you been hanging out with my parents? I feel like you you clearly you guys got from the same book. Uh, you know, I, I'm. It's my teaching philosophy. I'm not sure if it's a parenting philosophy, but no, it, um, it is a parenting philosophy for sure. It, oh, it definitely <laughs> is. I was speaking more in the optimal regard, I guess. <laughs> um, I guess my teaching strategy when I was subbing for first graders was <laughs> when they asked me if they could go to the bathroom, I would always just say, "Come back real quick," because you can never say no, but you have to. Portray some sort of authority into yeah. the situation. Yeah, maintain some level of control over these children. You can't let them know that you actually don't have any real control over any given situation. So it's all about the bluff. I mean, that's the thing. Kids are literally just water. Like, <laughs> they they do whatever you let them do. It's like water. If you pour water in the floor, it's going to go everywhere. If you pour water in a glass, it's going to sit where you put it. And so that's, I mean, that's kids. As long as you have rules and walls... They'll kind of operate within them. It's not, it's not rocket science. Corey, in this way, what would you say the primary difference between children and Hollywood screenwriters is? Um, you know, I, uh, I don't know if there seems to be a, a major difference at this point, you know? But then I, I think that's everybody. Um, but, yeah. We're all, we're all living in arrested development where we're learning slowly that any sort of arbitrary distinction between childhood and adulthood has slowly been evaporated by recent social developments. And so we're all just kind of sitting here. We might as well be 26 or 56 or anything. We just feel vaguely unfulfilled. So uh, we're desperately searching for someone to come and tell us that, hey, your podcast, your screenplay, your trombone solo, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. We just want someone to tell us it's it's going to be okay. I mean that that hits especially hard or after this last year where I've been doing my job while in my pajamas watching cartoons on TV. Um, <laughs> so that that's a little bit too close to home right now. Whew. Well, what a what a, what's what an opening dialogue. I think now it's about time we <laughs> we uh we crack open a, a, an ice cold can of discourse for the week. Um now, we've all agreed that we were going to consume and talk about uh, one certain WandaVision. Um, mm. Still waiting on the sequel, uh, Cosmo Vision, to come out. Oh. But uh, fairly odd parents' humor for you, fellas. That's, uh, that's what I got. <laughs> um, but yeah, so let's, let's start general. Let's start broad here, because I, I know for a fact that we're going to end up myopic about it. So let's start big. Corey, uh, how, did, how did you feel about the show? So I, I enjoyed it for the most part. I am somebody who, appre- I appreciate the juggernaut that Marvel and then in turn Disney built with um, this, you know, the the series writ large. Um, I'm somebody who 
maybe falls more so into the Scorsese camp to to go back a few weeks to a previous discussion. Um, a, re- a genuine where... fan of the pod. Oh my lord! Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Thank you. yeah. I, this is this is a call. What we in the business call a callback. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, like I I think I'm somebody who I appreciate what they did. I would maybe. I wouldn't necessarily call it fine art. It, it's still art. Um, but what I was so excited about with WandaVision was this is for them to launch their TV, um, the phase four, the, the TV run with this show, uh, I think was really ambitious. It wasn't the plan. I think that the pandemic had shifted and I think Captain uh, uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier was supposed to come first, but then they had mm-hmm. to redo the order. And that would have made more sense to me. WandaVision being the the leadoff point was really ambitious. I really enjoyed the, especially the first three episodes when they fully committed to the the period bits, the the parody of the classic sitcoms. I think as it shifted into like figuring out what's happening and and you know when you start to see from the perspective of Randall Park and Kat Dennings, I think. Uh, that's when it started to feel a little bit more Marvel. Honestly, when the aspect ratio switched, I was like, okay, I'm watching a, a Marvel film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With the good and the bad that goes with that. Um, but I think for what they attempted to do and what their ambitions were, I was really impressed. And I, uh, you know, I, I feel like you captured a similar take of it as I did I'm not as familiar so like the first three episodes I like that they committed to the bit more but I'm not as familiar with the source material from that time period frankly so more so when they got into the like 90s and 2000 sitcoms where I feel more at home and I understand like the camera angles and the cutaways and why stuff is happening the way it is um, I found more appreciation there but I, I agree as Wanda kind of starts to come out of it there's like some weird continuity stuff for me just kind of and we we can get into that more in a bit but generally my take was very positive i enjoyed the watch i have to note the thing that was going on with the sitcom stuff which was interesting i was having this conversation with someone might have been on the pod i honestly forget at this point but what was interesting about the first two episodes which were distinctly about the 50s and the 60s and for some people that might run together it was that it did not feel, it was funny, it was fine, it did not feel as authentic to me, it felt like content produced by someone who had little in the way of first-hand knowledge with watching I Love Lucy or The Honeymooners or something like that, and just being asked to write a broad parody of that sort of material, whereas when the 70s came along, when they were doing the Brady Bunch-style stuff, That felt a little bit more authentic to me in that if you actually went back in time and gave writers from the 70s like this sort of material to come up with, uh, they might be a little perplexed, but they would come up with something that felt a little bit more like that third episode. And I think there's a conversation to be had there for so much of the golden age of television, as it's called, really falling out of everyday relevance for people like we were having this conversation Jeffrey and I the other day what's the oldest tv show 
that people who didn't grow up with it still go back and watch. It might be Star Trek, maybe uh, Twilight Zone, but certainly people aren't going back and watching I Love Lucy. So it's interesting that WandaVision is kind of an interpretation of those eras of television as meant for an audience that now overwhelmingly is not particularly familiar with that on a firsthand level. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think two thoughts that I have, I mean, the, the first thing to kind of, Jeff, to go back to what you were saying, I think what I enjoyed so much about like the, the references, the parodies of the early things were, they were, they committed to the bit really heavily. And you know, the, the attention to detail I thought was, was pretty good. But the the actual parodies that I wanted to see them do more of, what they did especially well, I thought, were like the Malcolm in the Middle episode, the Modern yeah. Family episode. Yeah. And the problem with that was they didn't spend that at that point they were doing the half uh, sitcom trope, half Marvel thing, and so they didn't actually have the time or the real estate to spend really digging into that. And I think that those, the later it went, the better the. Uh, parodies or the the tropes, the way that they addressed the tropes became, but they weren't able to use it as well because they had other story to tell. So that was that's one thought. And then the other, the other thing is, and it was a criticism probably to with the to begin with is because Wanda and Vision were not they were not characters that people were desperate to see or really cared about before this. Like we didn't really know anything about them. And so the initial flaw with the series, at least to begin with was why does Wanda, why, why does Wanda, is she creating these projections? Like why is TV important to her? We've never seen her care about sitcoms. I mean, they eventually do answer it in the show, but I think the issue that I had was with the, just the initial premise to me, it felt like, they came up with the name WandaVision. They were like, that's <laughs> genius. Let's do a show about that. And then they kind of retconned it into it. And it ended up working. But because we didn't, like, Wanda and Vision were blank slates before the series really started. I mean, if anybody could tell me one thing about Wanda, like, a, a, a regular fan, a normal fan, if they could tell me one thing about Wanda Maximoff from, what, Age of Ultron or, or any of the other, like, Civil War, like, I would be shocked. And see, this is where the gulf exists between your relatively casual Marvel fan whose whole knowledge of these characters is pretty much reliant on the movies and the real heads, the people who have been reading these comic books for years, maybe even decades in certain cases, who have very specific ideas of these characters that they are bringing to the show right and you have to kind of manage the expectations of both of these individuals and this is where i think on some level the fan theories come in and that's another area that they i felt like they were non-committal in how they wanted to address I, I felt like they didn't have a fully uh, formed idea of how they wanted to deal with the fact that this was a show that was begging people to come in and theorize on some level. They were dropping so many hints about some big grand payoffs that I think you can maybe say did not pay off if not for the reasons that fans didn't think that they would pay off, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Probably doesn't. 
sort no. of. I'm I'm overtly not as familiar with the original content material. So like a lot of these hints or things you're talking about, I didn't really catch a lot mm-hmm. of. And so for me as the as a viewer who wasn't really thinking or looking for stuff like that, I didn't <clears throat> that's a whole dimension to it that I'm just blind to, I suppose. I agree. I was not as familiar uh, with the material. I mean, I was doing some of the the fan theories and people had theorized about Agatha Harkness um, going into it. I think that's a payoff that I didn't, that's one that didn't totally materialize for me. I mean, I know we saw her, but um, uh, from like a storytelling perspective, I couldn't totally commit to that. But what I think is a really interesting thing that's unique, maybe to Marvel, is, is... Tucker, what you were talking about with the diehard fans, I think there's something to be said about the the Marvel fan base. While I personally am not, like I said, I'm not obsessed with the films, the fan base to me feels much less gatekeepy than something like Star Wars, right? Mm-hmm. Like if there were a Star Wars thing and you had the casual, like a casual fan, a casual fan doesn't enjoy or isn't allowed to enjoy Star Wars in the same way that they can really get into Marvel because, you know, with that fan base, with the Star Wars fan base, it's, it's so intense. Um, and they just, it's so personal to them. Mm -hmm. And I think what Marvel has done really well, and you know, it's why Kevin Feige is the most important man at Disney right now is Mm -hmm. he knows how to appeal to stories and shows that, um, can appeal to the diehard fans and introduce elements of the mythology that the diehard fans really care about that, you know, normal casual fans maybe don't know or care about to begin with and then get really into it. Like the, mm-hmm. the best example to that for me is guardians of the galaxy, mm-hmm. right? That is not a movie that should have been successful. Right. <laughs> and, and it was, and it, it's a great, I mean, it's a, it was a, it's one of my favorite Marvel films and it's because there's this really deep mythology that people who care about the comics know really well. But if you don't care, if you don't know about it, you can enjoy it just as much. So mm-hmm. kudos to them. And the thing is, I guess, going back and just clarifying what I said earlier, it's that it's fine to um, have fan theories and everything Um I think this show, you could really make the case, given that this is the first proper Marvel Studios television project. Yes, you can talk about the technically distinct Marvel television brand and how they did Daredevil and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and all of that. But this is the first thing that really has that strong Kevin Feige branding that's existed as a TV show. So you have to make certain choices. Okay, what do we bring in from the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe um, theatrical installments, but what do we fill in the gaps with? And I really do think that there is a case to be made that they decided to fill in a lot of the gaps, at least with WandaVision, uh, with this mystery box sort of J.J. Abrams, uh, Benioff and Weiss with Game of Thrones attitude toward things. I think that they were in the first few episodes, even if you knew nothing about the Marvel mythology, even if you knew Honestly, we're kind of tenuously committed to the films up to this point. The show was shot and written in such a way that 
you were obviously unsteady. The whole premise is, at least in the first episode, was, wow, these there are these characters who are dropped in this weird sitcom thing. What's going on here? They wanted fans to talk about what the ultimate meaning behind all of these things was. And that's a dangerous game on some level because if you are inviting the fan theorizing, you do have the, uh, there is the possibility that people are going to be burned at the end. And I think that a lot of the um, things that people were ultimately dissatisfied with kind of go back to this idea that if you're going to do a twist, um, you have to do something that ultimately is more interesting than what was promised. And I think the big thing that the most, like, the thing that has seeped most into the casual viewership, because this goes back to another series of movies, is the Evan Peters uh, deal with Quicksilver, rather Ralph Bonner, Boner, ha ha ha. No, um, I think it's, I think they had to have known what they were doing there, and I ultimately don't think the payoff was worth teasing what they did, frankly. But I will give them a little bit of a pass because it does seem like in the same way that COVID really screwed up uh, Marvel's schedule as far as releasing goes, it seemed to have screwed up the production schedule such that you have the director and such openly admitting, yeah, we shot stuff for the last few episodes that we ultimately couldn't use because, and they talk about it diplomatically, but obviously they were running against a deadline and they had to commit to something. So that's what you get. Yeah, I think they also maybe painted themselves into a corner, bringing up the the Evan Peters, not even cameo. I mean, he's he's in it for a sizable chunk of it. But when you have like your your two lead actors, Elizabeth Olsen in an interview had said, "There's a cameo in here that's just as big, if not bigger, than Luke Skywalker showing up in the Mandalorian." And mm-hmm. Paul Bettany said, "You know." I got to work uh, alongside an actor that I've always dreamed of. Like, I can't wait for people to watch. It's one of the best actors. Bettany has now come out and said, I was just trolling the fans, which <laughs> is hilarious to me. But it's also like, from the point of view of of Marvel and, and everybody where there was kind of this um, rejection of the finale in whatever sense, where people were unhappy, they they wanted something bigger, like... When you've got your two stars hinting at this massive cameo that I can't imagine that was the Evan Peters thing. So it, it just never, it didn't manifest. Like, mm-hmm. people aren't going to be happy with that. So, it, I'm I'm sorry, I feel like I'm I'm missing something here. What specifically is this thing that people are pissed off about that didn't materialize? Or that materialized poorly? Well, so there were massive rumors and then semi-officially confirmed that there were going to be big appearances by Marvel characters, perhaps portrayed by big A-list actors uh, in the last few um, episodes. And the reason that there were a lot of fans who took this seriously was because in the comics, um, to oversimplify some things, uh, WandaVision has a connection with a certain entity called Mephisto, who is essentially the devil, right? Okay. And... um, there were some people wondering, oh, gee, 
is like Al Pacino or whoever going to show up as uh, basically the devil to explain all these things. And the reason that there was some level of plausibility here was because there were the little hints along the line of, and again, maybe fans were making too much of this, but when they referenced the devil and the details and all that sort of thing. And again, it's, you can blame fans for taking certain things massively out of proportion, um, but it, when your show is hinting that there is going to be some sort of big mystery that's revealed, again, you have to deliver something that's going to satisfy these people. And I just, I'm worried that a lot of the show does not have great rewatch value because, look, I don't think the Evan Peters character had to be um, Quicksilver from the Fox X-Men films, but Given that this was a movie that was, I mean, sorry, a show that was leading up to a movie, the Doctor Strange sequel that has the subtitle Multiverse of Madness, it was not entirely, um, it was not entirely out of the realm of possibility that this could be teasing that connection in some way. And when it ultimately boils down to a joke thing, then people are going to go back and watch this again and think, oh, well, this time with Evan F- Peters, it feels a little wasted to me. And that, again, that's the danger with teasing these sorts of connections, I think. Yeah, especially, I mean, the theory that I had bought into and was basically 100% convinced uh, after Evan Peters showed up was the cameo that I was waiting for and ready was Ian McKellen as Magneto. Um, mm. ca- uh. Canonically, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he, Magneto, is Wanda Maximoff's father in the comics yes and so with the appearance of evan peters and the seeming connection of x of the the fox x-men series and knowing that there are going to be now you know x-men marvel crossovers and they are in the same under the same uh roof i was Mm -hmm. on board with with getting old magneto or even michael fassbender magneto just to to make an appearance and i think that would have i think that would have been the impact the type of impact that they were all kind of alluding to that never really materialized. Mm -hmm. See, now I feel almost blessed in my canon blind (laughs) nature because the thing is I was able to just watch the show for what the show was trying to tell me. Mm -hmm. And so in no way did I feel cheated by any form of lack of inclusion of these big ideas, hearing them. In fact, I'm just kind of like, wait, what? (laughs) <laughs> so like, you know, for me, the, the twist that was the, the, like the even slightly disappointing thing was that, you know, oh, it was Agatha the whole time. And it's like, you know, I, I was really hoping we were going to double down on the whole, like, let's really deal with Wanda and let's really deal with grief and let's, you know, really dig into that. And like, there are mechanics and ways that you could go through, you know, visualizing and going through uh, like grief and strife and all of these things that she's dealing with. But, you know, I didn't completely hate the direction it took. It just felt a little, uh, a little under underbaked. And that's just it. It's when you're talking about the discourse surrounding this show on like social media and such, there are three sorts of people who have lots of opinions about this. There are the hardcore Marvel fans who were really invested in their theories and they're bringing to this show literally decades worth of backstory. There are the cinephiles, the people who are, who never really took superhero movies seriously They kind of hope that this is a face that gets blown over soon and they were never going to give this show a fair shake to begin with. 
And then there are your kind of normie fans who um, like it for what it was and are upset that other people aren't taking it as seriously as they would like them to. And none of these camps are free from sin. And obviously there are tensions here. But in that third category, the big rebuttal they'll say to pretty much anyone who has any sort of criticism is, you know, from, oh, you're just mad that your fan theories didn't pan out to, oh, you aren't going to take this as serious, um, uh, serious television. You're just like Martin Scorsese. What they'll say is, can't you just take this as a show for what it is? This is a show about grief. And the problem there is, okay, what does this show have to say about grief? Like, let's put aside the fan theories. Let's put aside even talking about this as a Marvel thing. What is the story it is trying to tell us about this very broad concept of grief? And I don't know if it really settled on anything coherent in that way. I I agree. I think the funniest line in the entire series for me was when Tiana Paris at the end says, uh, they'll never know what you gave up. And it's like, okay, they held, she held this entire town captive for everybody. And it's like, there's no real reckoning for, uh, the, the way that she used her grief to hold this town hostage. There, there could have been, it had the potential, I think, to have an impactful and somewhat unique take on, on the effect that grief has on the people in your life and, and how you're representing that to them. And ultimately, because it has to set up uh, the Doctor Strange 2 and you, ha- you can't hate, you can't vilify your heroes too much um, in this world, I think they took the easy way out and chose to not acknowledge, not fully um, dive into anything really new or meaningful about grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I have, I have two thoughts in order. One, I just, I, you know, it's, it's been memed all to hell. And I think the memes are very funny, but I do, I did really, really enjoy the line. Um, what is grief? If not love persisting, I thought it was poetic, really nice, really well done, well delivered. Um, the second thing that I thought about that was, I mean, is it, you know, just in, in an, speaking about what you were saying about how seriously it should have been treated in terms of what she did to these people. I'm pretty sure that like mentally altering the state of a couple thousand people for a month is a war crime. (laughs) Like that straight up violates the Geneva convention, right? Like we can't just pass on that. Right. Like I understand she's Scarlet witch or whatever. And like, you know, ultimately how are you going to punish her? Like if she doesn't want to be punished, but like, you know, you, there should be dealing with that ramification in a way that really wasn't done in the show. Jeff, if you want to punish her, you bring in the boys. That's that's what season three of that show should be. No, um, that's the thing. Um, and grief tied with loss. Obviously, this is a character who has lost so many people in her life, but it kind of speaks to the greater weakness of the Marvel formula in that and this is a thing that's existed in not just Marvel comics, DC comics, all comics going back decades. And now it's being applied more and more to film, which is that none of these stories are designed to ever end, Mm -hmm. which means on some level there can be no real stakes, right? 
the only way there are three ways in which actors stop being in Marvel movies. They are you're either Chris Evans or Robert Downey Jr. who have decided you have enough money and you want to go on and do other projects. You are an Edward Norton or a Terrence Howard who you had a contract dispute, so you're just not going to be in the next movie or unfortunately you're Chadwick Boseman and you sadly pass away. Um, None of these are for story reasons. We have decided that this character will no longer continue. So that's part of the problem here because Vision is not going away. Yes, the Hex version of Vision is gone, but we've left with White Vision, who clearly has... uh, (laughs) Which sounds like the worst TV show ever produced. I know. Um... Who, who has all the memories in his um, programming. He's obviously going to come back as some version of real he's, vision. He's just vision. At yeah. some point. And the kids didn't die or whatever. I mean, I guess they did. But obviously the tease at the end is in Doctor Strange 2. She's going to bring these characters back. Um, so that's part of the thing. We can't really talk about grief and loss in a normal way because these are not characters who... Um, actually deal with grief and loss in a way that real human beings do. I'm not demanding that this show be super realistic. We're obviously talking about a show of witches and androids and things like that. But there's a way way I think to deal with um, genre television in such a way that it can speak to real world issues. And I'm not quite sure that this is one of those. Yeah. And I'm prepared to get flack for this, but I think Talking about the the actual ramifications and the side effects of, you know, our superheroes' actions, what I think, an example of something that I thought handled it pretty well was Batman vs. Superman. Um, I am not a Zack Snyder <laughs> stan, but I think the opening moment, uh, the opening scene of that film is Ben Affleck running through the city as Superman just destroys the city um, in his single-minded you know, fight against Zod. And mm-hmm. I think, I think at least that movie attempted to, t- to show you the, um, the, the possible damage and the lives that are put at stake while these superheroes basically have carte blanche to save the day. Um, mm. And so, and they, they did, they did a similar discussion and it came out around the same time. Like civil war, I think has a, yeah. a similar point of view on it, but I thought that the actual seeing the damage done being done firsthand as he's rushing as uh, Bruce Wayne's rushing to save this uh, the children that are in the city um, that was at least an attempt of uh, you know leading to a reckoning with superheroes and the effect that they have on others. And it's frustrating because they even like they they talk about it like, you know, the, we have the one commercial spot that's about Lagos and it's like, wipe up this mess that you made. Like we're we're hinting that Wanda can't control herself and she is a danger and stuff like that. But then at the end of it, it's just like, well, it's OK. Don't worry about it. Right. And like, you know, they, there's even that exchange between her and Agnes where Agnes tries to drop the military people. And then they're like, that's what they're going to think of you is that this is what you do. And she tries to save them from hitting the ground. It's like. She's trying to be responsible, but then in the moment after the dust settles, she's just like, peace, which yeah. out. And, you know. Yeah, I'd and also be just to take one step back because it's it's something that I think um, 
talks about it uses the if you're going to be discussing grief and using different subversions and and parodies of certain tropes i think the the show does a good job of it it takes nine episodes to tell the story and one of the best takes that i saw online was it took nine episodes to tell this story about grief that a show like community which is one of my all-time favorite shows it took one episode there's 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 an episode in season two where the character Abed, who is the the television obsessed character, he suddenly viewing this his entire life as a stop motion Christmas movie. And you realize as it goes that the reason he's doing this is because he found out that his mom won't be coming home and spending time with him for Christmas. So he's manifested his grief in this. And in that one episode, I think you get the full arc, at least about you know, finding comfort and safety in familiar things. Um, you get that just from that episode. And it's one of my favorite episodes of probably anything. Hmm. Community, great show, great show. More people should watch it because we do need the six seasons in the movie, if nothing else. Yeah. Um, no. Um, I don't know, Jeff, do you have something to say? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I just, I think that in terms of, you know, it's it's really easy for all of us when you know when we're in the critics chair and we have the whole product together to say oh well these are two different stories and what if you split it up this way and stuff we have the benefit of hindsight and viewership and you know i think that realistically given that this is marvel's first true crack with the full budget and the full array coming at the tv thing i think they will learn a lot from from going at this uh this way and you know, I I think that a certain amount of dissatisfaction from people is normal and necessary to precipitate a product that's representative of what we've come to expect from that studio. But, you know, I, a- I think that there are lots of creative choices that could have been made differently that ultimately would have been met with just different criticism, not necessarily praise. Yeah, I'm also, you know, there there were two ways that they could have come out with their first television production. And I think we're going to, I actually, I have a feeling we're going to see this where they could have either gone out like they did with WandaVision, which was really inventive, kind of like had something really interesting to say that felt specific to television. So it made sense to me from like a meta standpoint of why this is their first TV property. The alternative is they could have done a movie or a show that just feels like one of their movies and was very safe and, and, played up the brand that they've built so well. And I have a feeling not having, not knowing really anything about the show. I have a feeling that's what uh, Falcon and winter soldier is going to be. To yeah. me, it looks like it's going to be a, however long five hour, you know, captain America movie without Chris Evans. Right. And that's and less interesting to me. I'm, I would much rather they take these big swings, even if they don't necessarily pay off. And to be clear, though, I think a lot of WandaVision ended in a way that was dissatisfying. I'm hesitant to judge them too harshly because if so much of the ending seemed a little pat, uh, be it the revolution, of, the revelation rather of who uh, Evan Peters' character really was, be it Wanda seeing any consequences to her actions, I really do think a lot of that probably had something to do with the fact that 
They'd shot a lot of material that they ultimately could not use because the special effects would not be ready in time. So they had to rush something out. And it really comes down to if you're a Marvel fan, did you want, you know, this to come out in some form as soon as possible so that you could have your Marvel content or in hindsight, were you willing to wait a few more weeks or months for this to happen? And at a certain point, um, it's really not a choice that makes sense for Disney because if you delay WandaVision, you delay all these other shows and something has to come out at some point. Um, so it would be interesting to see if um, some of the ideas that they all had ultimately meant for uh, the finale and WandaVision to eventually make its way into other projects. Yeah. And I think that uh, that calculus of, when does it come out? How long do we wait? I think that was probably the one of the biggest decisions, especially for Disney, because they launched Disney Plus under the guise of we have all of this IP, we have all this property, now you get to see all these new shows in your favorite worlds. And for the first however long year or so that it's been out, I don't know exactly when it came out, but we really they really only had The Mandalorian as... Yeah. Uh, their flagship show and especially if you're going to be touting the fact that you've got Marvel you've got the Avengers at some point you need to release something new for that fan base to get them on board Um, there's Mm -hmm. only so much that the Mandalorian is going to be able to get you they really launched and sustained one of the biggest streaming platforms in existence on the back of Baby Yoda yeah. Hey, don't don't knock Baby Yoda. I mean, he's got that's a strong baby. <laughs> I will like, say the the best the best LA they're the most LA thing I've ever seen was as I was driving down the street, I saw somebody in the Mandalorian gear on a like a souped up scooter, and <laughs> on their front they had a Baby Yoda doll on their pet, and they were just driving down the street. This was just a normal ride. I was like, okay, yeah, this is people. People are into it. I I believe you when you say he was just driving down the street. I don't believe you when you say it was just a normal ride. <laughs> because with that get up, no ride is normal. <laughs> it's not doable. <laughs> but um, yeah, wow. So that's that's a lot of very, uh, I mean, hopefully pseudo-intellectual musing about some good things, some bad things, uh, the role of fan theories and, you know, a lot of other stuff. We could, I'm sure between the three of us, we could sit here and do this for two and a half hours over drinks and not bat an eyelid. But unfortunately, we have other people that listen to what we do here. I love Katherine Hahn. Uh, this is maybe her second best role behind uh, an all-time classic in Step Brothers. Mm. Um, yeah. Which that... I don't think anybody can ever like you're never going to top that in your career. So she can keep trying. It's great. But that's that's her um, her magnum opus. She she was the MVP of that movie, I will say. Yes. Like, can it, can I be real honest about something for a minute? What's that? So when I think about like kind of campy, funny movies from earlier in a time where we were allowed to say certain things and be a certain way on film. I, I think about like Napoleon Dynamite. I think about like Anchorman to a certain extent. Step Brothers, you you can't convince me. I'm sorry. It was never funny. The movie Aww. was never funny. Oh, it was funny. I'm yeah, I'm I, sorry. It wasn't. 
Come know. at me, Step Brothers I, fandom. <laughs> I, Wait, hang on. You can't. Step Brothers fandom is lewd. <laughs> I I love Step Brothers. I have. I am of the opinion, especially with comedies, that so much of what makes a comedy film last in a certain fan base is like where you're at in your life when you see the movie. So Step Brothers as a middle schooler, like that, like for me. I was that was the perfect time to watch it um, with like the group of friends that I was with. I feel the same way about Billy Madison. So like Adam Sandler movies, I mm-hmm. saw Billy Madison sure. at an early age. All time classic. You can't. I know it's a bad movie, but you can't tell me that you don't like it. Is my opinion. Whereas Happy Gilmore, I hate it. Will I will not watch Happy Gilmore if for no other reason than I grew up working at like a golf driving range. And the amount of people that think they're the first person to ever run up to the ball and hit it, a la Happy Gilmore, like, <laughs> they suddenly think that they're, you know, they're Adam Sandler reincarnated, and uh, they're not. Literally every single person's ever done it. That, and then grabbing the guitar that's in the corner of the room at a house party, same energy. Same exact energy. <laughs> and you say these movies that um, hit someone at exactly the right time in their lives, this is this is not a comedy movie, but as long as we're talking about Adam Sandler, I don't know what it is about Uncut Gems, but I am part of that legion of 20-something to 30-something guys who, for some reason, revolutioni- it revolutionized my life. And you know what? I will be quoting that movie for the rest of my life. You, you did this it for is the how memes. I win. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He should have gotten an Oscar nomination for that. Hey, we, we get Oscar nominations tomorrow. We get Oscar Ooh. nominations tomorrow. We get... We get Falcon and the Winter Soldier this week. We get a, uh, we get the Snyder Cut of Justice League this week, which I'm gonna watch it. I'm just gonna watch it because I have to see it. So uh, we're eating good this week as far as just pop culture stuff goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm uh, probably too excited for the Snyder Cut. Um, I have no. I'm just excited to see what the differences are. Like from a purely academic standpoint, like what did they change? Uh, what what about the movie did Zack Snyder hate so much that Joss Whedon did? So I'm excited. What warrants re-releasing the whole damn thing, you know? Honestly, 50% of it is just me being a massive dork and Martian Manhunter being my favorite hero. And I hear he's <laughs> going to be in the movie. So I'm, I, on principle, I have, I have to watch it. It could suck and I'd say it'd be good. I because- hope the Snyder Cut is just more slow pans of male characters. Please just give me that, and then a bunch of really upset fanboys. Like we're we're gonna get the Joker uh, reincarnated as the Messiah. I mean, if if Zack Snyder's (laughs) done as anything, it's got to be based off of uh, Jesus imagery. So we know that the Joker is gonna be uh, crucified in some capacity. Hey, Joker starts with J. Now hear me out. Hear me out, J Man. Joker putting it together. Joker, Jesus, Jared Leto. Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, hang on. It's all coming together. We're bringing it together. This is a sign of something. I'm not quite sure what, (laughs) but something. This is not the Da Vinci code, but it's, it's someone's code. The Joker code. (laughs) It's no, it's probably more like the code to get into a safety deposit box. And inside is half an onion. (laughs) (laughs) We're getting there. Jared Leto is such a method actor. He uses that onion like to cry on set and he would give it as a gift. Some of the stories about him just being an absolute menace delivering like a bullet riddled 
pig corpse to his co-stars. Just insane. Yeah, no, it, I mean, geez, you want to talk about how to not do something like, and that's anything in life. The way that he handled that role was just how to not do something. And then Walking Phoenix came and did it and he did it obviously better and also was not a f- giant flaming dick to his co-stars. So what are you doing it for, Jared? Are you just kind of antisocial? I mean, you know what? Whatever. Well, Corey, I got to say, you know, it was great having you on. And the same thing I said to Chris is true. If you ever have something you want to promote, if you ever have like a friend who has something you want to promote, if you ever just, you know, want to get on your soapbox about something, you have a microphone here. And I don't know, I'm glad you see how the sausage is made because now you understand that the first 10 or 15 minutes of our actual recording is just awful jokes that bomb, but <laughs> it all has to go to Jeff, who is the technical guy here and makes us sound uh, somewhat legible. Yeah, he's definitely earning his keep because uh, <laughs> if you can make anything legible out of this episode, uh, you deserve the, the Oscars. Hey, this is one of our better episodes that's why recording. They, that's know? why they pay me zeros of dollars <laughs> a week to sit and comb through um, all until the stuff Until Bang that Energy comes in and then they're going to be fronting the bill. Bang, if you want to like sponsor our podcast, go ahead, do it. Here's the problem. If both of us drank a can of Bang Energy before this podcast, it would be 15 minutes and it would end because I would start having heart palpitations. (laughs) But we would have covered all of the same ground. Everything we would have said would have been condensed into the 15 minutes. We just slow it down. for (laughs) Set that playback speed to 50%, please. Thank you. Um, My God. My my whole studio is full of blood. There's no more blood left to bleed, I don't think. Um, well, the only the only plug that I do want to add, it's the same one that Chris had. Please check out American Sci-Fi. Um, the, you, if for no other reason than you get to see Tucker being Tucker um, in perhaps his finest role behind maybe Ghostland Boys, which you should also watch available on Amazon Prime. Yeah. So American sci-fi, check that out. Um, Instagram, Facebook, Instagram, Facebook. Um, and if that looks good, check out Ghostland boys on Amazon prime for free with their membership. There you go. Well, that's the plug. Uh, my name is Jeff. My name's Tucker and have a good week. Bye.